first, though, we are taking a look at what the return to school is going to look like for many people on Monday. So on Monday, schools will be open with reinforced safety measures in place, including uh, the provision of three-layer disposable masks, which are the masks that, that look like these ones. And those are the masks that we have been providing in schools throughout the pandemic, and we've worked to ensure that we that districts have a, have a good supply of those masks. There, there will be measures uh, to, intra- to reduce crowding, to stagger break times. Uh, we will uh, be shifting to virtual assemblies, virtual staff meetings. Uh, uh, we will be restricting visitors to schools for the, for the time being. That's Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside speaking just moments ago at today's briefing. Let's bring in Rani Sangara, the PAC president with Cambridge Elementary. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me, Jill, and Happy New Year to you and your view- and your listeners. Happy New Year to you as well. What are your thoughts about school resuming on Monday? Um, well, I mean, the anxiety is still there. Um, we didn't hear anything new in the announcement. Uh, I think those things that uh, the minister stated have been going on for quite some time now. I know that there's been virtual assemblies. I know the masks have been mandatory. I know that... Um, visitors are not allowed into schools. So I'm not really sure what really has changed and what the announcement, um, what the new announcement was. One of the other points that was made by the minister, she said, kind of reiterating what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been saying, that contact tracing just isn't working. There's just so much COVID in our communities now, it's, and it's so much, it's, it's happening so much faster that they're not able to contact trace. So instead, they're going to be shifting more to an attendance, uh, taking attendance records. And if they notice a big drop in attendance in certain areas, that's where the notifications are going to be made, or that's when people are go- they're going to be paying more attention to that. Does that give you any kind of reassurance that that's how they're going to be monitoring things? Um, not, I don't really think so. I think most parents um, are quite anxious about that, about the communication. The communication has always been lacking um, when it comes to notifications and what's going on in schools. And, you know, at this point, um, I'm not really sure that um, we don't really know much about this variant and it's spreading so quickly that I think parents do understand that it's very difficult to get um, the numbers right away. But I think that they need to be doing more, um, working on, on how to safely go online if there is an outbreak. Um, I think that they're just, you know, I think that there needs to be better filtration systems in schools. And I think that a lot of parents have been asking us why they're not allowed to put a units, um, air purifying units in classrooms when they're doing it in Ontario. So I think that, that parents are just probably listening to this and wondering, okay, nothing has really changed because all these things that, that the ministry the minister talked about was already in place. Um, and I think that, so what's going to happen now with communication is, and I think that a lot of parents will be communicating on Facebook pages, they'll be communicating with each other. And so when that happens, sometimes it's not always the correct information going on. And sometimes, you know, we've noticed from before that when there is not communication from the Fraser Health, then um, people start to panic. And I think that's what's going to start happening is people are going to start making their decisions. And we've heard from some parents is that they won't be sending their kids back to school at this time anyways. So there's a lot going on right now. And I think parents, their anxiety is really high. And I think it's just a matter of just getting into this and seeing where it leads us within the next few weeks. Uh, you mentioned the purifying units, and I think that's one that uh, there is a lot of confusion about. At least I, I found that. Like you said, other jurisdictions are doing that. Many workplaces have brought in these these units. We keep hearing about ventilation. Doesn't it seem like that would be a pretty easy step to take? Yeah, and you know what? We've approached um, the, the school district, and we were said no. And we, we even, like, we have parents... Um, saying that we will fundraise for it, we will, you know, try to put money into it. Let's just get these units into our schools, especially into portables. And if you look at, you know, our, especially Surrey School District, we have portables in every school pretty much. So, and and, and we were told, no, that that cannot happen. And, um, but then we hear that, we just, I just heard on the news last week that Ontario is having these um, units in their classrooms. So, you know, parents are confused about that. And we, we get asked that a lot from parents is that why can't we fundraise for these units and why cannot they be put into, into our classrooms for the extra protection?
And I think that's certainly a question we're going to keep hearing as well. You mentioned that some parents will choose to keep their kids at home, whether it's out of an abundance of caution, whether it's because they've been exposed, maybe somebody in the house has had COVID as well. What about parents that are also working and they're now going to be waiting on a day-by-day basis, wondering when are they going to get the call or get the notice that, hey, your class is going home, is going online because of a COVID exposure exposure or COVID cases, how are parents supposed to pivot so quickly in scenarios like that? Yeah, you know what? And that's just an extra anxiety on parents that are working. That's just an extra um, thing that they have to worry about now. And, you know, we feel like we hear from a lot of parents um, just being on the District Parent Advisory Council as well that, you know, there's been... um, They should be proactive when it comes to this. They knew back in December that... Um, that the variant was spreading very quickly and that things were going to be different. So, you know, that was beginning of December. They had all a Christmas break. Now we're into January and it's January, you know, two days before school is supposed to go back and they make the announcement. So a lot of parents, I think, were hearing from parents and saying that, why aren't these announcements made earlier in the week? Why are we not hearing this more? Why didn't we hear this during Christmas break? Um, why are, Why is the government always reacting to it? We need the government to be proactive when it comes this we've been in this for almost two years now and you know we just feel that schools need to be open just you know the minister is saying it the parents are saying that for for kids mental health and also for learning that that's the best place for them but schools need to be safe you know and and we're talking about why teachers were not getting their booster shots during uh, christmas break um, to give them that extra protection so that schools don't close down so there's just a lot of questions i think that that parents are always asking like why is 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 it always so last minute right do you have any does is it reassuring to you or do you think to other parents it was also mentioned in the news conference earlier today that there is a very high rate of vaccination amongst teachers uh, even though they weren't prioritized for the booster shots and that those masks are going to be made available for everybody does that help i mean it uh you know, masks can be available. It's just the, the fact of kids, are they wearing them? Um, you know, they're they're mandatory, but, you know, we're, we're hearing that they're not always being being put on. And I think that, you know, I, I and I understand that the government, uh, we, we ask them to do a lot, but we as parents have also should be um, proactive when, when we send our kids to school and we make sure that kids are wearing their masks and we make sure we do that, do the health and uh, check every morning and make sure that our kids aren't coming down with something and to do keep them home. Um, so, you know, I think that if we all do our part, um, we can try to get through this, um, hopefully, um, without too much happening in schools. All right, Rani, we'll leave it there, but I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me and uh, have a great day. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking a little bit about the new fees, 25 cents for takeout cups, at least 15 cents for paper bags, a dollar for a reusable bag if you have to purchase one of those. They're just in place in Vancouver. They were postponed for a year, but already there is a lot of reaction. We were talking about this yesterday because we were talking about how people who are some of the most vulnerable, homeless people who are given food vouchers are finding out the fees are extra. They still have to pay those fees. The city says they are looking into that. They didn't anticipate that happening. Did they really do their due diligence on rolling this out? Yesterday when we heard from the city spokesperson on this, she referred to it as a journey. I'm not sure you should ever refer to a new fee as a journey for people, but there you have it. That prompted us to get in touch with Christina Sani. She is the owner of two cafes, the Doro Gelato Cafes in downtown Vancouver, and she has some opinions about these fees, and she's on the line with us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jill. I appreciate it. You are a business owner. You own two cafes, which means you will be impacted by these new rules when it comes to charging people for takeaway cups and for paper bags. What has it been like even uh, these first few days with those rules in place in Vancouver? Well, I think the greatest thing, Jill, is, is, you know, when you start nickel and diming consumers and adding things to their invoice, they start to, you know, they don't feel good about it. And, And by charging 25 cents to a guy who's coming in to buy a cup of coffee, if the cafe across the street is not charging that 25 cents, where do you think that consumer is going to go? He's going to go across the street and that's going to drive business away from me. 
as, as a small business owner, it's really hard already as it is to stay alive. And I'm a very eco-conscious person. I already do buy many of my things, which are biodegradable and compostable. But the cost of those items is very expensive. And the 25 cents or 50 cents is not going to cover the full cost of it. And, and I don't expect the city to pay for it. I, you know, I'm accountable for those costs as, as a business owner. But there's no method in place for the city to come in and police this. How are they going to police it? They can't even police building permits on time. I mean, they're adding another thing to their plate that, that is just going to fall to the wayside. Some, can, some businesses will charge it. Some businesses will not. And I think that sometimes when we put these, these initiatives in place, there's not, it's, the full thought process is not put out. And whether it's a self-serving issue or job protection or whatever it may be, but why is it always put to the business owner? You know, it, it shouldn't be. If the city wants to do something for the city, then they should be doing it and not putting it on the doorstep of a business owner. I think that's really unfair. It's the same with parklets. They build all these beautiful parklets, and then they want the businesses to clean them, manage them, water the plants. You know, I don't have a problem doing it, but where does it end is my question. No, it's a it's a very interesting point. When we talk about the bringing in of these fees, and we know they were postponed because for a year because of the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is still going on, obviously, but now these these fees are in place. How onerous is it on you as a business owner to collect them and to keep track of them? Well, it is because now I've had to create a new um, item in my POS system that will identify it as a separate charge on the invoice. I have to record all that. I have to administer that to make sure I'm keeping track. The onus is on the staff for charging it, um, you know, if they forget, because it's not just built into the price anymore. And uh, on top of it, the staff have to, you know, deal with the consumer who's not going to be happy for being nickels and dime. It's kind of like being told that you got to wear a mask. Those poor staff people are just having to have too much to deal with by just trying to sell a cup of coffee and keep their job. And you talked a bit about enforcement, and we heard from the city on this as well, and the city saying that the, the initial enforcement is really not. It's going to be education and encouraging businesses to do this. But like you said, there's nothing that that enforces it. It's all put on the business, and it's also all put on the business what they do with that money. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on the fact that no one is checking to see if businesses are simply pocketing the money or if they are using them using that revenue for green initiatives like they're supposed to well that's exactly the point is they're not they don't know and you know not all business owners are going to be ethical and do the right thing for the environment but how do you police that how, you can't you simply cannot you simply cannot There's, there are untruthful people in the world like it or not and not everyone is going to do it how does it work out, do you think, as well, when we talk about the, the new fees for takeaway cups, for paper bags, even if you did reinvest every penny you now make on those fees, does it cover what you're supposed to do as far as going green in the city of Vancouver? No, absolutely not. It's, it's just like a comparable is like good food costs more. So to be healthy, you have to spend more on groceries. For the people who are needy and don't have a lot, why do you think? Because white bread is cheap. Hot dogs are cheap. You know, it, it, it's not going to cover the cost. It simply will not. You mentioned your staff members as well. And unfortunately, we have seen during the pandemic uh, violence erupt when people are asked to wear a mask and people really showing not a lot of respect in some cases. How has it been for your workers and for the frontline workers in the cafe? Very difficult. You know, I have to say a lot of them, I, I, have, I have one staff who basically said, you know, I just can't do it anymore. I can't deal with the public anymore. It's gotten so hard. You know, you have one or two people that come in and they just ruin your day. You try and be so nice and so kind and so serving to them. And they think that you're just a piece of dirt because you're just a barista. Well, <laughs> excuse me, but I'm trying to make my way through school. I'm trying to make a living. I'm trying to stay alive. You know, I'm no different than you. Why do you have to be so disrespectful to me? 
And that caller you had in yesterday who had the voucher and went to McDonald's and was charged, I think that's what set me off because I was like, seriously? A, a, a needy person walks into McDonald's and they're expected to pay 25 cents for a cup? Where are we going with this? Yeah, and, and when the city was asked, the city spokesperson was asked specifically about that, and the answer was, oh, we didn't anticipate that, or this is something that uh, has just come to our attention, and we're looking into it. Uh, does that speak to, do you think, the fact that this was rolled out without enough consultation and without enough being done, enough, enough groundwork beforehand? Yes, and then unfortunately, you know, we have a, we have the, the city, it's, does this, does this repeatedly. It's not the first time. And I, I can go into a million different explanations, but it's exactly what it is. They roll it out. They don't think of the consequences. They haven't done enough of a study on it. And now it all backfires and you're, you're faced with these types of scenarios, which is really unfortunate. Are you concerned as well? You mentioned off the top there that, that if somebody has the choice, obviously, if you're going to go to one cafe where you're going to get charged an extra 25 cents instead, and another one isn't, you'll go there. Uh, where If cafes, too, are located anywhere near, say, the border with Burnaby or the border somewhere else or somebody's out driving, are you concerned you're going to lose business in that people will go to other places where these fees aren't in place? very possible it's very possible i mean you know coffee shops are kind of a community thing so you know you tend to gravitate more to the one in your area the one that you're comfortable with the one where people know you one where you know you don't even have to tell them what you want to order they know what you're going to have so you know i'm not concerned about people downtown who are going to go to burnaby to get their coffee but i am concerned about them crossing the street and going to somebody who's not going to charge it yes and there's also been the issue of uh, reusable cups and the kind of push for people to do that. I mean, that was part of the reason, I think, why it was postponed was because when it was first supposed to come out, we were in a place in the pandemic where people weren't using them for sa- for cleanliness, for sanitary reasons. Are we at a place now where, where your staff are comfortable if somebody comes in and hands over a reusable cup? Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> My understanding was that with COVID still, that we're not supposed to accept personal cups. Now, has that changed? I'm not sure. Um, no one's, I've never seen anything written on that we're now accepting reusable cups. So, you know, it's putting that, it's putting that added risk again on the staff to handle something, especially now with the cases going up with this new variant. It's like touching a doorknob. Do I want to watch, touch someone's cup? It's, it's just another measure for them to be to contract the virus, which I would not support them taking them. Right. And Christina, so going forward, and I mean, we've talked to some other business owners who are shutting their doors, uh, saying it's just too expensive. This is an addition to that. What do you do as a, as a small business owner going forward? Well, like everything else, the consumer who's going to have to pay. You know, I've survived COVID. I stayed open the whole time. And... Um, I don't plan on closing, but unfortunately, like everything else, I'm going to have to put my prices up, inflation and everything else, and it's the consumer who's going to end up paying. And it's the consumer who's going to have the loudest voice who's going to complain that, you know, why does my coffee now cost $8, (laughs) right? All right. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. It is an important issue, so I'm so glad that we were able to touch base with you. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Well, if you have seen posts that show some boxes on a grid, some are yellow, some are green. Generally, the last line is green. And if you've wondered what it is, you're not playing Wordle. It's a new word game. It is, you could say, sweeping the nation. A lot of people are playing. It's a game where you start with five letters and it kind of whittles down and you try and get the word in six tries. I will fully admit I've become addicted to Wordle. I play it first thing in the morning. But I also play a lot of other word games. But it got me to thinking, why are we so drawn to these types of games? And do they actually help with our brain health. Well, Ryan Darcy is a professor at the School of Engineering Science and the School of Computer Science at SFU and is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Do you know why or is there research that shows why people are drawn to these types of games? 
I, well, I don't know of, of specific research that about why people are drawn to those games, but there is a lot of research uh, that focuses on how our cognitive thinking abilities, um, how we can do games like this to continue to keep them engaged. And is there proof then, or should we feel good about ourselves if we are playing these games that we're not actually wasting time, we're improving our brain health? Oh, definitely. I, they, um, often you'll hear, and people certainly ask people like myself if it's true, about use it or lose it. And they add, even at the sort of the most basic level, when you're doing things like this, you're being conscious and, and mindful about, about your thinking. And as we age, our thinking changes. So, so you're really being mindful about your brain health at that moment. So th- these games are always great, a great idea. And how do we know that? Or do we see, has there been study, have there been studies done or research done that actually does show the, the benefits of this? Of, of, um, of Wordle, for example, probably not yet. <laughs> of, of other uh, games, for sure. What we know is actually, um, when, when you just pick these games and you do it, let's say, in an unsupervised way, that's, that's great for you in general. There are actually now programs that are, in essence, like this, that are almost like going to a brain gym uh, that, are, that are built on science research to help uh, maintain your cognitive fitness, just like your physical fitness. And so, yes, there's lots of research in science on that. And, um, and it's, uh, it's very important uh, to sort of think about your cognitive fitness. And does it matter or do we know if it matters? Is there a difference if, say, it's a game like Wordle where we're talking about letters or if it's, say, something like Sudoku when we're dealing with numbers? Uh, the answer to that is kind of yes and no. Uh, no, it doesn't matter in the sense that you're still thinking about your thinking and you're, and you're keeping your mind sharp. Uh, the yes is that different types of cognitive exercises, you can, uh, it's like going to the gym in the sense that you can choose to do uh, your cardio or you can choose to do weights. And so, yes, those, those, that's the same for, for these games as well. So is it better than if it's more of a challenge? Definitely want to keep it challenging. Um, it, it, uh, it's really important to keep challenging yourself with these games. That, that ties into this scientific concept called neuroplasticity, where uh, what we know now is that actually our brains have this capability of, of rewiring their circuits, if you will. And so when you challenge in these cognitive games, you're actually driving neuroplasticity. So you're, you're allowing your brain to form new circuits, which is always a good thing. If you're if you're directing it in the right ways, and is it is it true that it can even do things like stave off, say, dementia or Alzheimer's or diseases that really have horrible consequences? Absolutely, the case. Yes, in our clinic, uh, for example, in our Surrey Neuroplasticity Clinic, we actually have cognitive programs, and we have a lot of people who uh, are worried about uh, different uh, devastating brain conditions that undertake those, those, those programs for sure. Um, there are programs out in the world that are science-based. I'll recommend uh, one is uh, out of San Francisco called, called Brain HQ. And that's actually the thought of as brain fitness. And then actually there's a local one we partner with, uh, the Watson Center for Brain Health. And, um, and they have a lot of uh, cognitive programs as well. It's right out of BC. So, so there, are, there are these programs that you can use. So if you're worried about uh, age-related cognitive change, this is something proactive you can do uh, to stay at keeping your brain and your mind healthy. I would imagine, though, it's not as though it's a a magic cure in that if you're genetically pre in a place where you're more likely to develop one of those illnesses or you already are showing signs, it's not as though playing these games will stop that. But would it still help? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It's not a magic cure by any stretch. uh, But what we are finding is that you have this capability inside your inside biologically your brain is built with this neuroplasticity and so you always have the ability to go with focused cognitive rehabilitation or cognitive brain exercises to either reduce the slowing the rate of of decline in dementia and alzheimer's for example and try and mitigate that um, but also in, in healthy living to optimize so that your brain is, is working. And so back to that, use it or lose it. What we're finding, it, for example, around dementia 
is that there are a multiple things that we all know are good for us, but we tend maybe not to do enough. And, and what's happening, we're finding now is that, you know, for sure, sleep is important for sure. Uh, physical exercise to keep your cardiovascular system is important for these things. Diet is important, but when we're really trying to help people with mental acuity, we, we are now bringing in cognitive fitness as a key factor as well. And I would imagine in addition to the other things, it's not as though if you play Wordle every day, it's not going to, to be beneficial for everything. You still have to keep those other things that you mentioned in mind. That's right. It's, it's not going to hurt, um, and, it, and it may help at the, at the very minimum. You will know if, if you're starting to, you know, say, oh, gee, you know, I'm not doing as well as I thought. Maybe I should go see someone. So it, it, it allows you to be more mindful of, of how your thinking is. And that's the first step in being able to take care of it. How much time should people spend on things like this in that? Uh, and, and again, we're talking about this because of this popularity of Wordle. It only takes a few minutes, well, I guess, depending on how good you are at it or if you get the word. But how, how much time is there a, a general amount of time that is recommended as far as cognitive? How much time people should, should spend exercising their brain every day? There isn't a general time. There's no science studies that I know of personally that sort of have, have, have given a specific amount of time. What I would recommend is that um, uh, small doses are still effective if they're done frequently and regularly. So, so if you were to do it once a month, it's probably not going to have, let's say, the major effect. But if you're doing a little bit of cognitive games uh, each day, that, that is still quite effective, absolutely. Um, I have to ask you then, do you play Wordle? I, I don't play Wordle. My career keeps my <laughs> mind uh, pretty busy, so I, 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 I would love the moment where I, I can uh, actually go to brain gyms instead of have to build them. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan, we appreciate that you are building them and doing that. And thank you so much for joining us and for bringing uh, your perspective on this. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, you likely recognize that music. I certainly do. And I got to thinking, I don't remember how many years ago. It was many, many years ago. I actually saw Biff Naked play as part of Lilith Fair. That goes to show just how long ago it was. But she is still going strong. She is a very well-known Canadian rocker. And she has a new show coming up right here in Vancouver. She's coming to Vancouver's Rickshaw Theatre on February 18th. But let's find out what she's been up to in the meantime and what it's been like getting prepared for this show. Biff Naked is with us on the line now. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I can't wait to see you in person. <laughs> it sounds so strange saying that, but yes, it's, a, it's something to look forward to. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You have a, a show coming up next month at the Rickshaw in Vancouver, the Rickshaw Theatre. How long has it been since you performed on stage live with people around? Oh, well, out here, I've been in Ontario for the last couple of years, and out here is probably a little different than B.C., um, but as you guys experienced in the summer and in the fall, you know, things were starting to seem like they were swinging back around. Uh, we did a short tour um, across Canada with another band called Buck Cherry in the fall. And then after that, with the holidays, everything kind of slowed down like it always does for, for everyone to celebrate the holidays. But now going into the new year, it's daunting. Everyone feels up in the air again. And uh, I have to always commend Motar Mohammed and everyone at the rickshaw. They never give up. They don't give up on, on shows, on their staff, uh, on the bands and uh, on the audiences. It's amazing. So we cannot wait to be there. And you'll be performing, I think, some, some new songs. I know people that have listened to you for years will, will have their favorites, but there'll be some new songs as well. Was this uh, material that you came up with during the pandemic or what can people expect? Oh, well, definitely. We've been working on a new record for a couple of years called Champion. Um, we were actually coming up with a release date, which was last year, and released the first single about six months before that. Um, and with the pandemic uh, starting in, in 2020, it just kind of threw everything, um, I guess, on hold. It just didn't, it didn't feel appropriate for me. I just didn't think the world needed a a Biff Naked record when we were in the middle of a crisis and, you know, coincided with a bit of a 
uh, uprising, um, a social justice uprising was just more important. So we're still hoping to put it out this year, <laughs> but we'll be performing new songs. And what's it been like for you? I know obviously everybody has had a different experience and has different comfort levels when it comes to being out for socializing. But when you are somebody who's used to being on stage and, and you're used to, to being part of that and being in person and, and with live music, what's it been like during this pandemic? Uh, well, I know I speak for a lot of artists, for sure, artists, uh, theater, actors, uh, choreographers, and uh, even even writers. You know, there are no book tours uh, available. All the speaking gigs that we had uh, were canceled. And, you know, ultimately, certainly all the performances, the live performances were canceled. So everyone kind of pivoted, and there were a few streaming shows here and there that happened. Some artists uh, really enjoy. Uh, doing the streaming, they've pivoted and gone to stuff like TikTok and, and a variety of different ways to, um, you know, feel like they're able to connect with their audiences and stuff. Uh, but for us, it's just really been um, throwing ourselves into the studio while we're in this downtime and, and really fine-tuning a new record that's coming. And it's, I mean, for me, I haven't put out a studio record in, you know, in 10 years. I haven't felt like I haven't wanted to. And by the time it comes out, it's going to be a triple album. <laughs> Amazing. And I know so many people are looking forward to that. For you as well, I mean, I know you're very open about on social media about kind of being centered and being grateful and being in that good place. How did you kind of navigate that? Or what do you have any tips on as far as how you kind of kept your sanity and, and stayed focused? Uh, well, you know, definitely... Um, it's stressful, I think, for everyone, um, just because, you know, it's, it's a public health crisis, basically. A pandemic is something that, it, you know, none of us have seen in our lifetimes. Um, so it, it's difficult. And if you, you know, if you've had any friends or family members get sick or worse uh, or lose their jobs or anything like that, it's been a time of massive grief in a way. There's a collective grief that's happened. And, um, you know, it's hard for people to stay positive. It's very difficult at the best of times, never mind during this, you know, chapter of our lives. Um, for me, I've just always been the same kind of girl, and I blame my parents for it. Uh, I'm just a, just a relentless, annoying optimist, and I can't even help myself. Um, I'm always going to stay positive and find the silver lining. It's how I'm built. And I'm always going to do it. So if you ever need a silver lining, just ask me. I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good skill to have. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because I think also part of your history, I mean, people will know your music and they know you as this amazing entertainer. But also the memoir that you wrote about how your life started out and the early days and some of the big challenges. What was it like sharing those moments with people? Oh, well, I've been kind of lucky in a way, having been a performer for so many years in Canada. I grew up on the stage, and, and my audience kind of grew with me. You know, we all, you know, turned 25 together, and then 30 together, and then 40 together. And, you know, now going into my 50s, I just think, you know, a, a lot of my trauma I wrote songs about uh, in my early career, so they knew the stories. Uh, but by the time I wrote it in the book... Um, it was much different. I couldn't hide it in poetry of lyric writing anymore. I couldn't, you know, kind of uh, enshroud it in lyrical romanticism or anything like that. It was it was really a little bit surprising for me uh, to to feel a little re-traumatized as I had to write it down, but I'm glad I did it. And, and when I do public speaking, I talk about it all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of people can relate. Everyone has... Uh, their story and everyone has every single one of us no matter what socioeconomic tax bracket we're in uh, no matter what religion race gender anything everyone has had trauma and sadness and fear in their lives and for us to be able to talk and share uh, is how we're going to always get through it 
It's just amazing too to look at at, at the the early days, and I didn't know this, but I know in reading a bit of the background and getting ready to talk to you today, I had no idea that in your early days you were you were adopted by missionaries, that you that you were born to a Canadian and a British, and kind of squirreled away. I had no idea about any of that stuff. Um. You know, it's really funny. I've known that I was adopted since my earliest memory. My parents always told told my sister and I we were adopted, so we always knew it. Plus, I was the only Canadian in my family. Uh, so that, for me, was, you know, I was very proud of that. That was something that my, my father used to brag about, that I was the only Canadian. And, um, you know, it, it's with a sense of pride I was able to go through my life feeling wanted, not unwanted. I felt like my parents... Um, you know, wanted me. Um, and my birth mom, with whom I'm dear friends now, um, you know, it's not that she didn't want me. It's that she was a baby. You know, she was like, she got pregnant at 15 and had me at 16. So, I mean, you know, it's very pragmatic in a way of her parents um, to nudge that process to happen. Uh, but at the same time, it's nice for us to be able to have a relationship now as adults. And and when you look back too, that's 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 such a, a great memory. But when you look back as well at some of the challenges that you faced and the struggles, would you change anything if you could go back? Not a single thing, not one thing, not anything, not at all. I would love to do it all again. You know, I might, uh, I don't know, I might be a little. Um, less shy, I guess. I didn't really find my my courage or my bravery or my voice to speak out until I was on a stage. Um, You know, my personal life was very different from being on stage. I was very um, polite, like my Minnesota mother. And uh, on the stage, I could be impolite and very... Uh, outspoken. So definitely, um, I'd probably try and be more courageous now. And would you get the same number of tattoos? I would have so many more. (laughs) I would have so many more. Honestly, it's sad. It's actually sad because I always think of tattoos I want. I think I want tattoos on my neck. I want tattoos on my knuckles. And and my mother always says, what are you going to do when you are at the bank? And they see those knuckle tattoos. They're going to think you're going to rob them. When you pull out your bank book, she says, I'm like, who has a bank book? What are you even talking about? Nobody has a bank book, Mom. It's okay. They're not not going to worry. But, yeah, I I love tattoos. And, yeah, this day and age is different than when we started getting tattoos. Everyone has a tattoo now. <laughs> is it true that, that your tattoos kind of, they showcase your life's journey? Do, do each, do all, do they all have a, a message or a story to them? Oh, definitely. You know, I've always been, uh, not just because my parents were missionaries, uh, but my dad particularly was a theologian as well as being a, a dentist and, um, and a public, a master, had his master's in public health. So he was a, a good Samaritan. Uh, but he exposed us to everything from Buddhism to Taoism, uh, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. I mean, it was amazing. And my tattoos are almost all uh, things that are based on devotional texts or uh, things that were important to me, uh, things that I studied throughout the years. And they're almost all deities. And they're all, they all have great meaning and significance to me in my own, like, I guess, spiritual journey. Um, and, I, and I love language. I love words. Words are powerful, just as powerful as image. And, uh, and I would probably get, yeah, I would love to get a million more power words tattooed all over me, but I'll save that for the next generation. <laughs> and before Plus we... I ran out of room. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask, you must be running out of room or maybe not. I totally ran out of room. <laughs> I have the Taj Mahal across my entire back. And my whole torso uh, is is all done. It's all taken. My legs are not tattooed because I promised my mother a long time ago I would always be able to wear pantyhose at a spring wedding. Mm. Uh, so I do not have tattoos on my legs, even though now it's quite popular. And I don't have tattoos across my chest. Um, but, you know, as I get older, I think 
I should get a massive butterfly across my chest, or I should get a big lotus, or you know. But I probably won't. <laughs> now I'm lazy. <laughs> well, I I don't think lazy is a word that many people would use to describe you at, at all. Uh, Biff, one other question: what What do you say when people say that you're very inspirational, or if people look to you and and look at the struggles, uh, the things that you've overcome, and find inspiration in that? Um, obviously, I'm humbled and flattered, but I really believe that every single person has a story uh, that is equally as harrowing or triumphant. You know, each one of us has been through probably a lot of the same things. Um, you know, stress and grief and, and victory, it's all relative. And uh, I don't think my story is any any more special than anybody else's. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are really looking forward. You're coming to the Rickshaw Theater in Vancouver on February 18th. Thank you so much for joining us and for chatting today. Oh, thank you for chatting with me. I can't wait to see everyone. Well, we know that schools will be back in session. Most students expected to be back in school in person on Monday. Still a lot of questions about what exactly that's going to look like. There was a news conference earlier today to address a lot of those questions. And I'm pleased to welcome BC's Education Minister to the program. Jennifer Whiteside is with us now to talk more about this. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, One of the things that came out of the news conference that is getting a lot of attention, and certainly there are more questions, is the idea of families being notified of exposures in schools based on the attendance dropping. Can you explain how that's going Mm -hmm. to work? Yeah, so what, what um, what we know is that it's really important for parents and for the school community to continue to be able to understand what's happening with with COVID in, uh, in, in school communities, but our traditional uh, kind of, you know, case management and contact tracing um, process that, that we rely on through public health to provide information to, uh, to school communities about individual cases, that really just isn't, um, isn't a tool that is going to be helpful for us in, uh, in, the, in the current circumstances that, we, uh, that, that we're going to be dealing with, given the, given the number of um, the amount of COVID activity that, we, uh, that we're seeing and that we're, that, that we're going to continue to see. Uh, so we need a different measure. We need a, a, a sort of a proxy for, for that. And what public health has developed is um, a, 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 an approach that is really what they, what they use uh, in other situations where there are, are other communicable diseases like influenza. They look at attendance. They, they, at those times that there's a, if there's a flu outbreak, they're looking very carefully at what's happening with attendance. So schools who, uh, you know, educators know their classrooms, uh, principals know their schools, they know what the attendance usually is. Uh, during any given time of the year. So they'll be monitoring for, um, for absences. And when the absences dip below, um, say, 10%, below um, what uh, would be a normal uh, rate of, um, of people, of kids away, of students away, then that will trigger action uh, notification to public health. And public health will determine then uh, what they what they need to what they need to do in response to that and that might be uh, you know they certainly they'll investigate that might look like deploying rapid testing Uh, and at the time that a school notifies um, public health that they that they've identified this this attendance trigger uh, they will also notify the school community that there's an elevated um, amount of uh, uh, level of absence happening. Are you concerned though that much like we've seen through this pandemic word of mouth tends to travel a lot faster. And so when it's 5% or 8%, a lot of parents and families are already going to know and are going to be waiting for action to be taken. Yeah, that, that, that's true. I mean, we can, we can generally say that just at a, that, there, that on any given day across our school system, there's about uh, one in 10 um, kids not at school and for a, variety of, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons. So we know that there's a certain level of, um, of, uh, of, of absenteeism that we, just, that, that we expect in, in schools. So it's really that trigger of when it starts to go beyond that. I do want to say that I, I know that, I mean, you know, schools are community hubs. And, you know, parents have networks and that is really important. And that's been in a um, that certainly there's been a lot of communication um, about um, the experience that families have had through their networks throughout the pandemic. And that's going to continue. And that's going to be uh, that's going to be important. That is going to be a way in which 
in in fact, um, we can all work together to uh, to try to share information, make sure uh, that um, that that there's uh, that uh, certainly that parents are sharing within their immediate network um, uh, what might be happening with their child, so that there is as much information. Um, out there as possible because we we simply are not going to be able to rely on the tools the important tools that were that were about public health providing us with validated information about um, you know about test positive cases I mean they'll you know they public health is now shifting to a a different strategy out of necessity to um, to to preserve um, the the, um, the the you know the the approach to testing to ensure that we can you know keep healthcare going and uh, you know really respond to outbreaks and clusters and, and such. So uh, so there will be changes, and I know that this will look different. But there's a, certainly an important role for um, for for you know network communication, parent network communication to happen. Will there also be a trigger point for teachers and for other school staff? I mean, if we look at Surrey for an example, the superintendent was on this program earlier this week and said uh, under pretty normal circumstances in the Surrey district, about 10% of the staff are away. There are about 600 teachers that are away any given day. Uh, so, and, and I think the number is 25% is where we could see those functional closures. Is there a number between there, though, that would also trigger measures if we start seeing absenteeism with staff? Yeah, Jill, I think that that is, that that's really possible. I think the measures will be some, the thresholds will be somewhat different for staff because it really depends on whether you uh, whether we're dealing with uh, you know with a with a with a big school where there's 18 or 1900 students or a much smaller uh, school with three three or 400 students. So the the impact if you pull you know the same percentage out of a smaller school, obviously that that you know that that can have a bigger impact. So you know schools are best going to be best positioned to determine how they can ensure that they can continue to safely provide you know service to kids and education to kids. So there will be those decisions or those the situations with the workforce or something that um, that, that uh, school principals and, and superintendents will be monitoring very carefully. Uh, and this is where we will see, um, uh, you know, also a, a prior, priority use of, um, of rapid testing to support um, understanding what's happening with it with illness across staff so that we can try and keep keep staff at um, you know uh, at, at schools as much as possible are there going to be deployments of rapid testing on site for staff members say two days a week or three days a week will there be any kind of regular rapid testing uh, my understanding from public health is that no they're not looking at a sort of an asymptomatic uh, testing process what they're really looking at is to be very strategic about how to deploy the the frankly the you know the, the the somewhat limited supply that we are that we're going to have certainly in the short term although we know we you know we are anticipating a, a many, many a delivery of many more tests from the federal government in the in the coming the coming days and weeks um, but I, the deployment of that from public health will be will be very strategic and aimed at symptomatic testing to distinguish whether there's whether whether there's a, whether it's COVID or or something else that uh, is being experienced by a, um, by, by an individual. Uh, there are continued calls. Uh, the BC Teachers Federation repeated this earlier today. Uh, I've been hearing it from other people as well, saying that, yes, we know that the the guidance from Dr. Bonnie Henry is the best mask is the one that you wear regularly and properly. But we also know that N95 masks are, are also a better mask to be used. Why not deploy or make sure that N95s are available for people in the school system? Well, we, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, what we have done in education is we've been supported by, um, we've been supported by public health on the question of, um, of, of masks and, and how to wear them. And the advice that we continue to have from public health is that uh, a quality uh, three-layer uh, disposable mask is um, it is pr- is appropriate in uh, in the school setting, and so that is what we are ensuring we can provide to every to every student if they need one. Of course, you know we ask parents if they can send their uh, their their child to school with uh, with such a mask. That's great, but we uh, but we will certainly ensure that schools have them available. We've been in touch with suppliers and um, have, uh, have 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 made sure that there there'll be a there'll be a good supply of those masks um, in the in in schools on Monday. And what advice do you give parents then? Because there's obviously a lot of anxiety over functional closures. And one day your kids are going to school and the next day you're told the school is now going to online learning because of a functional closure. What advice do you have for parents on how to even plan for something like that? 
Yeah, Jill, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I appreciate that these are really, these are anxious times for, for, for parents and for our, our communities as we, uh, as, we, as we sort of brace for uh, the, the, the Omicron wave that's, that's coming. And I, you know, there has been a lot of discussion over the last few weeks in education about the importance of doing everything that we can to keep kids connected to in-person learning. We know how important it is. Um, that, uh, that that kids have the, the benefit of, of actually being in school. And we know that um, in some circumstances in the coming weeks, it may be hard for districts to sustain that. And so that's why we took, that's why Dr. Henry directed that, that the, that the educate K-12 system take this week to, to plan for that. And I anticipate that we will see disruptions uh, and we will see situations where we will uh, have to shift temporarily to home-based learning. But our goal is to minimize, do, do what we can to minimize those disruptions so that we can get kids back into schools as soon as possible if their uh, their in-person learning is is disrupted. Would there be a scenario where even if there's a significant number of staff members that are out sick, if there are still staff members there, would there be a scenario where the school could stay open? Maybe it wouldn't look the same. Not all of the teachers are are there, but would it still be open that children could go there even if they're not getting that same level of education? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, schools are going to really, de- they're, they're going to determine what their, uh, what the plans look like for how they make a shift to, uh, to, to home-based learning and certainly are, are going to, uh, to need to consider um, how we uh, a- addressing the needs of, you know, children of essential workers, for, for example, um, certainly will be working closely. Schools will be working very closely with parents of um, students who have uh, diverse abilities and particular particular needs uh, to support their education. Uh, those uh, uh, those issues really parents need to be be connected with their with their their school principals to work out those uh, those plans. But there there will be different there will be different scenarios. There are there are different things that may happen um, before we get to a point where where an entire school is shifting to home based learning. Um, and, and those are the plans that, uh, that the districts have developed uh, over the course of this week. All right. And one other question, and this was something that was brought up by a PAC president. We've talked so much about ventilation, about money being available for ventilation. Why are there still schools that don't have even the most basic, say, freestanding air purifiers or, or ventilating machines that would help? Well, I, you know, I can say we've, we've done an enormous amount of work on ventilation and continue to do that because we understand that it's, uh, uh, that it's, uh, that, that it's a very important layer of protection in our schools. So in addition to the in excess of $150 million that we've spent since 2017 on specifically on uh, ventilation systems in schools, we have engaged a, um, uh, uh, an engineer. We have a technical advisory panel that's helping us to support districts in identifying those areas that that need uh, that need some uh, additional mitigation measures with their with their ventilation, and those thankfully are relatively uh, you know those are relatively few circumstances across the system because most districts have been able to um, upgrade their H their mechanical HVAC systems to some degree uh, to increase the, the filtration, and they are all all districts are paying a lot of attention to ensuring they're running their HVAC systems longer, that they're turning over the inside air more regularly um, and uh, and changing out the the, the filters more um, more more frequently there are districts where there where there are classrooms that are not connected to mechanical HVAC that have made the investment in uh, portable air filtration Abbotsford for example and we're looking of course we now have the, the federal government announced uh, some additional COVID safety funding for schools uh, just recently and we're working with the federal government on how 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 quickly we'll be able to access that and, and deploy that and that that those funds will also go to support some of those immediate needs that we have in schools around around uh, uh, ventilation uh, mitigation. All right, Minister, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for your time okay. today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. Bye-bye.